So as we continue our sermon series on mercy, what it means to show mercy, I just want to give us a reminder of what that mercy looks like in our lives and why it's important to show it. It's built around this passage from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Would you read these words again with me this morning? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We looked at that last weekend, and if you were here, just just a recap, if you were not, uh, this is to catch you up a little bit. We looked at that in the parable of the prodigal son, which could also be called the parable of the prodigal father, because prodigal just means to spend everything. And in the story of the prodigal son, the younger son spends everything he has, but no one outspends what the father does for the sake of his two sons and giving them all that he has. And out of that great love and mercy, we are reminded of the impulse of our Father. It's an impulse of mercy. To not lash out in anger and retribution, but to reach out in love towards his people. An amazing act of mercy that the prodigal father shows to his two sons and our Father shows us. And in that parable, we are reminded of how we respond to mercy. And the first thing we do as we respond to God's mercy is to admit that we are lost, we are sinners, and that we have gone astray. The second is to repent, to turn around, to come home to where the Father is. And the third is to be forgiven and then to be merciful to others as the Father shows us mercy. And I want to remind us again this morning of what that definition of mercy is because today, as we look at the story of Joseph, that definition really comes to bear. Mercy in its definition is this, compassion or forgiveness that is shown by someone whom it is within one's power to punish or to harm. So you have the ability to hurt someone, but instead of hurting them and giving them what you feel is just and rightfully theirs, a punishment, you show them grace and mercy instead. But as we look at that story of Joseph, let's begin with a word of prayer. We pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this day, this time together, this opportunity to gather, to be reminded of your mercy, that we need not fear anything, because you are near to us. Your love, your mercy, your grace surrounds us, and you are a God who is now and forever will be for your people, so we might always know your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about the story of Joseph and, and what that looks like and, and how that looks in our life, an illustration came to mind, one that I'd shared with you as a congregation probably seven or eight years ago. So, so if you remember it, awesome. If you don't, well, I'm going to share it with you again this morning. It is the story, a short story by a, an author named Edgar Allan Poe. If you know Edgar Allan Poe, he writes a, a little bit darker, short stories and And the short story that I want to share with you this morning is the one called The Cask of Amontillado. It's a story about a gentleman named Montessor who has been gravely offended by someone he considered a friend named Fortunato. And he's been offended over and over and over again until finally he has had enough. In fact, in the short story, it says this, Montessor said, For the thousand injuries of Fortunato, I had borne as best I could. But when he ventured upon insult, then I vowed revenge. 
So Montessor comes up with an elaborate plan of how he is going to take revenge on his friend Fortunatu. And there's a carnival that is coming up and he decides that that carnival is the perfect setting to exact his revenge. So he goes to the carnival with Fortunatu, plies him with a few too many drinks. Fortunato, who is probably not thinking straight at that time, Montessor approaches him and says, says, I have this vintage, rare vintage of Amontillado, and I would love to share it with you. Well, Fortunato, who believes himself to be the finest of wine connoisseurs, says to him, well, who better to tell you how rare a vintage it is but me? So he follows Montessor to his house, and Montessor takes him down into the catacombs where he has said he has stored this rare vintage, this cask of Amontillado. As they go down further and further into the catacombs, into the cellar to get to that cask, they begin talking, and and Montessor explains his family crest, how it was designed and put together, and, and then shares the motto of his family crest, which says this, no one insults me without impunity. And in this foreshadowing, you know what is about to happen to Fortunato. So they get down to where he says the cask is and and points out to the wall where the cask is lying. And and as Fortunato, who has had one too many drinks, walks over to where that cask is supposed to be, Montessor grabs him by his wrists, pins him up against a wall, chains him to the wall, moves a skeleton aside to which he exposes the loose bricks that have been ever so carefully placed there and begins brick by brick to wall Fortunato into the chains that he has put on him. And as this is happening, Fortunato at first thinks this is a joke. It's all a game that's being played until the wall keeps growing and growing and he realizes it's no longer a joke and Fortunato begins to sober up and he looks at Montessor and and cries out in desperation, for the love of God, Montessor, for the love of God. To which Montessor looks at him with a smile on his face and says, yes, for the love of God. And places the final bricks into the wall and walks away to the rattling of chains. And the end of the story goes, the words of Montessor. And so these past 50 years, Fortunato has remained there. What would you have done? How many insults would it have taken you to want to exact that kind of revenge on someone else? How many insults in your life has it taken for you to build up brick by brick a wall that separates you from the people who are in your life? Because we may look at that story and go, go, that is ridiculous. Who would literally wall somebody up behind a wall and leave them there for 50 years? And yet how many of us have broken relationships that we have allowed to stand for year after year after year because brick after brick of offense has separated us from that person in our life? How many of us have broken this in our families? 50 or more years of generational brokenness where we say things when it comes to Thanksgiving or Christmas like like we don't invite that side of the family. 
We don't ask that aunt to come to our Thanksgiving. We don't allow that grandma or grandpa. I don't allow my mom or my dad. We're not going to invite them to any of this because we have allowed the bricks of brokenness to separate us from the people, even in our own families. And this is the story of Joseph. Because Joseph could have easily walled off his family or have walled them in as prisoners, leaving them for dead. In fact, the story of Joseph, while we're looking at chapter 45 today, begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, we hear about Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob. And as Joseph favors, or as Jacob favors Joseph, he gives him what many remember maybe from Sunday school stories, that coat of many colors, that beautiful coat. And Joseph, knowing that he is his father's favorite, has a dream. And in this dream, he sees the stars that are bowing down, and, and he sees uh, sheaves of wheat that are bowing down. And, and he goes up to his older brothers and says to his older brothers, hey, I want to let you know about this dream I had about, about a day when you are going to bow down to me. C- could you imagine if you are an older brother or sister in here having a younger brother or sister come to you and say, hey, just wanted to let you know that someday you're going to be bowing down to me, what would you have done in that moment? You would have helped them find the floor, wouldn't you have? Right? And Joseph says, says you will bow down to me. And, and I am favored. Look at my coat. Well, one day his brothers are working out in the field as he goes to them to check up on them for his dad. And his brothers see him coming and say, you know what, we need to do something with this troublemaker. We need to do something with this Joseph. So they come up with a scheme to kill him. Well, Reuben, the oldest, says we should not kill Joseph because that will hurt our father. So why don't we instead, why why don't we just throw him in this, this pit and we will decide what to do with him. So they throw Joseph in a pit and they see a caravan coming along and, and Reuben says, hey, let's sell him to that caravan and we'll take his coat, we'll spread blood on it, we'll tell his dad that, that he is dead, but we won't kill him, we'll just send him off into slavery. And so they do that. They basically leave him for dead, sold into slavery, carried off by a caravan to Egypt. And there he is sold to Potiphar and begins as a slave in Potiphar's house. But Joseph, being a hard worker and a wise man, rises up into the house of Pharaoh to second in command till Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of something that he never did. And once again, Joseph falls to the pit, into the pit of a jail. All of this because of his brothers who sold him into slavery. Well, Joseph again interprets dreams and, and he, he helps a baker and a cupbearer who later on remember him when Pharaoh has a dream and, and he goes into to the court of Pharaoh and in the court of Pharaoh, he interprets the dream and tells Pharaoh, your dream means that there are going to be seven years of plenty in the land and the crops will grow and you have more than enough. But after the seven years of plenty, there will be seven years of want. And those seven years of want of famine will be worse than the seven years of plenty. So what you need to do is you need to store up for yourself enough during those years of plenty so you won't run out during the years of want. And we hear about this in Genesis chapter 41 where Pharaoh says, well, who is going to do this? Who is wise enough to store these things up? 
And Pharaoh says to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. So you shall be over all of my house and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. And only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Joseph rises up to be second in command in all of Egypt. Well, as the years of plenty go by, Joseph stores up for all of the people there so that when the years of want come, they are able to be taken care of. And the nations around them start to experience the years of want and begin asking, what are we going to do during this time? How how are we going to have enough stuff? And, And Joseph's family, who is still living in Israel, experiences this famine. And they go, we need to go somewhere where we can find food because otherwise we're going to starve. And so Joseph's father sent his sons, except for the youngest, Benjamin, but the ten older, sends them to Egypt. And they come to Egypt, and lo and behold, who do they show up in front of? Joseph. So now Joseph has to ask himself a question. What do I do? Do I become Montessori? Do I wall my brothers up? Do I take vengeance upon them? Do I get back at them and get them everything that they deserve for what they did to me, or do I show mercy? What would you do? How would you treat someone who has hurt you in such a way that they sold you and and they left you for dead and they took everything away from you and they never gave anything to you and they only hurt you and never cared for you? How would you treat them? Would you wall them up or would you show them mercy? Well, Joseph goes through this elaborate story of, uh, of interaction with his brothers who don't recognize him because Joseph has grown up. He probably dresses differently now that he is in Egypt, and, and they don't know that it's Joseph they're standing in front of, but Joseph knows it's them. Finally, he tells them, you need to go back and get your youngest brother, Benjamin, and bring him back. And they bring Benjamin back and then he gives Benjamin five times the portion of food from his table to see if his brothers will still show jealousy or if they've changed. And finally, we get to Genesis chapter 45. And in Genesis chapter 45, we see this mercy of Joseph and how he has learned to be merciful to people who were never merciful to him. It says this. So then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known finally to his brothers. And Joseph wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh, they heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It is I. I am still alive. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. You can understand why they were dismayed. They were probably dismayed out of terror. What is he going to do to us? But Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. As Joseph walks on this path to mercy, the first thing that Joseph does on the path to mercy is he expresses his emotion and then he reveals the wrong. See, the first thing that we can do on the path to showing others mercy is to express and understand our own emotion in the situation and then to reveal the wrong that has been done against us. 
Because while we can show mercy to others, it is still valid that you have been hurt, that that somebody has levied pain against you in your life, and that pain, that hurt, that brokenness is a valid feeling. And in the midst of that, as he expresses himself, he also then points out to his brothers, remember, you are the ones who sold me into Egypt. He exposes the wrong that they had done to him. He acknowledges it. And that's something that we have the opportunity in the right way as we speak the truth in love to do as we show mercy to others. Is there is a way in which we remind and, and, and tell others how they have hurt us or pained us. It's the first step towards forgiveness. Because unacknowledged brokenness can never be dealt with. It's like the person who refuses to go to the doctor because they don't want the doctor to tell them, uh, look, you need to change your lifestyle or this is going on in your life or, or they don't want to hear bad news from the doctor. So they figure the easiest way not to hear bad news from the doctor is to completely avoid the doctor altogether until that news is so bad that it's too late to take care of it. I mean, this is Matthew 18. If you have something against your brother, go to them one-on-one. Acknowledge what they have done to hurt you as Joseph does in this situation. Because the truth is, while we think it is good to avoid conflict, when we avoid conflict, what we actually do is we avoid reconciliation. That's why Jesus called us in Matthew 18 to go to the person who has offended us and to speak that offense to them. Because to avoid conflict is to avoid reconciliation. And that might mean it gets a little bit messy to begin with. But I was reminded of this this past week when I was walking through my house frustrated at the huge messes that were all over the house because we are cleaning out every room and kind of restructuring our rooms. And my wife said to me in the midst of my frustration over the clutter and the mess, she says, you do realize that things have to get messier to get cleaner. And isn't that true when it comes to mercy? That there are times where things have to get messier for a little bit of time so that they can get cleaner. The second step. The second thing that we see on this journey to forgiveness is that Joseph recognizes God's greater mercy. As he says, you sold me in Egypt, but he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And yet God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. He says, do you not see that this was God's act of mercy? His mercy for you, his mercy for me, his mercy for the people all around. This is God's mercy that I would be sent here. And we can say in the midst of hurt and pain and suffering, how do we see God's mercy? But we are always reminded that God works everything for a greater purpose than we could ever understand. Romans 8, 28 says it this way, God works all things for the good of his people. And we may not understand that. And yet we understand God's greater mercy. And when we understand God's greater mercy, there is no one that we cannot show mercy to. And then Joseph invites his family to come and live in Egypt. He says, says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and, and your children shall come and bring my father and make sure Benjamin is here. 
And then at the very end it says, and then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Joseph in that moment decided to choose the path of mercy. Do you see how in the life of Joseph, this truly is the perfect picture of mercy? Someone who in their power had the ability to hurt, harm, and punish, chose compassion and forgiveness instead. And it's exactly what Jesus did. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who in all rights has all power to punish us for our sins. And instead, the Father put the punishment that we deserved on his Son, Jesus Christ. And he showed us a greater mercy than we could ever show anyone else so that we can express our emotion, expose that wrong that has been done to us. But in understanding God's greater mercy, we can then show that mercy and forgiveness and grace towards others. And Joseph does this with those who are closest to him and hurt him most. It's why it's so necessary for us to show mercy in our home because it is in our home and in that proximity that we oftentimes experience the most pain of offense. It's like this. Have you ever tried to play hide and seek in a brand new house that you've been moved in, that you moved into? It's, it's a lot easier to play hide and seek in that house, right? than it is to play hide-and-seek in a house that you've lived in for 20 years. Why is it harder to play hide-and-seek in a house that you've lived in for 20 years than one that you've lived in for 20 days? Because you know the house really well, don't you? You never know every corner and cranny, and you know every hiding spot, and you know, you know exactly where you and would go to hide, and therefore you check every spot you would hide for those who would hide from you. Because at home, you can't really hide. And so it is in our lives. It is hardest to hide from those who are closest to us. Our brokenness, our sin, our waywardness. It is hardest to hide from them and that's why many times that pain is greatest when it is levied upon those who are closest to us and it is why it is most important that we bring mercy and grace into those situations and that mercy, it sounds great in theory. Right, Leah? We should be merciful to each other until we're the one who's hurt. And then that mercy is really hard to show. And yet, Jesus showed mercy to those who were closest to him. He showed mercy to his disciples who denied him, betrayed him, who ran away from him. He was merciful to Saul who persecuted his people and called him to be the Apostle Paul. He shows mercy to his children, sons and daughters, and he calls us to show mercy to our family as he has shown mercy to his family. It's why God calls us as husbands and wives to show mercy to our spouses, as fathers and mothers to show mercy to our children, as sons and daughters to show mercy to our parents. We are called to show mercy. The Barna Group, who, who did this study on mercy, actually found this out about the difficulty of showing mercy to those who are closest to us. In their studies, they said this, a marriage partnership presents daily opportunities to either delight or offend someone who is very invested in your thoughts and behavior. Thus, married couples likely are well rehearsed in needing forgiveness too. 
When asked if there was something for which a person had yet to accept forgiveness, 19% of married practicing Christians said yes. One in five practicing married Christians struggled with mercy. It's easy in theory. It's difficult in practice to give and to receive mercy from those who are closest to us. Whenever we do premarital counseling with couples here at Grace, we always have our couples read this book together. It's called When Sinners Say I Do, just an awesome resource for couples who are going to be married or for couples who are married. And in this book, as Dave Harvey talks about what it's like to live with the greatest of all sinners, and he's not talking about his spouse, he's talking about himself. In the midst of it, he talks about mercy. And he says this, he says, my wife loves coffee, but me, I'm more of a tea guy. My friends consider tea to be feminine, but I don't think hard enough in the morning to ask gender questions about my breakfast drink. I'm just glad to have the right shoes on the right feet. And I like my tea, I like it sweet. Splenda, sweet and low, equal, it really doesn't matter. Just back up the truck and dump as much sweetener in it. Sweetener works its magic by taking what is bitter and making it sweet. Like the sweetener in my tea, mercy changes the flavor of relationships. Mercy sweetens the bitterness out of relationships, especially marriage. So just back up the truck and dump the mercy in. It's what God did for us. And God calls us to do for others to dump mercy into our relationships because that mercy changes everything. And I want to share with you the, the three things that we see both in the prodigal son story and in this text that allow us to dump mercy in. The first one is this. The first step is to see. To see people as God sees them. Because how you see someone is how you will treat them. So if you see them as the enemy, if you see them as somebody who is opposed to you, if you see them as someone who just sold you into slavery, you will treat them in the way that you see them. But if you see them as God does, then you treat them as God would, just as Joseph did. The second one is go to them. Don't wait for them to show up to show them mercy. Do you notice in this text, that Joseph doesn't wait for them to repent of their sins and say, I'm sorry, we messed up, we should never have sold you. They, he doesn't wait for them to say any of that. He just shows mercy. He goes to them. And that's our opportunity is to go to others. Not wait for them to show up, but to go to them and show mercy. And the third one is to just do it. To show mercy. To ask this question, how can I fully love as I am fully loved? I believe it, it would be the question that the father in the prodigal son story would have said, how can I fully love my son as I am fully loved? It's a story of Joseph, where Joseph says, how can I fully love my brothers as I am fully loved and have been shown mercy by God? It's the opportunity that we have to show mercy to others. So believe it or not, my wife and I, we don't always agree. I know some of you are shocked by that. In a marriage relationship, we don't always agree. And, and, and I know you are going to be more shocked by this, that there are times where I'm the one at fault. It's true. I know you're shocked by that too. I understand completely. But here's the deal. If in the midst of that, in my faults, 
And in my wife's faults, if I were to withhold mercy, then why should I ever expect her to show me mercy? And in your marriages, and in your families, with your children, with your parents, as you want mercy, we have the opportunity to show it because it's what God has done for you. He didn't wait for you to show you mercy. He came to you in Jesus to show it. And you don't have to wait for others to come to you. See them as God does. Go to them and show mercy as God has shown you mercy. So who in your family do you need to show mercy to today that they might see God's mercy through you? In Jesus' name, amen.